in the wake of the storm. Welcome to Small Talk with the Lees. I'm Brandon Lee, your host, and Justin, my co-host. And we've got Andre and Alejandro joining us here. Uh, we are four Mormons, or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we're talking about the CES letter, uh, which talks about the truth claims of the LDS Church. And today, we're going to talk about the prophet puzzle. Last time, we kind of introduced the subject when we got into the catalyst theory. So if you haven't listened to that episode, be sure to go back and check out that episode on the Book of Abraham and a working hypothesis of a catalyst theory. In this episode, we kind of take a deeper dive um, into the problematic questions that that really, honestly, no one wants to face once they learn about the Book of Abraham translation issues. And so, you know, I don't uh, claim to know anything about Joseph Smith's psychology or mind. Uh, you're going to know that, notice that this episode constitutes more of a hypothesis than anything. And it's going to be more speculative than our other podcasts in nature. But, I, you know, I really like this Facebook quote. Uh, it says, The only thing we can be sure Joseph Smith believed in was astrology as he died wearing a Jupiter amulet. And to me, like, that really shows how mixed and complex and confusing Joseph Smith's life is to us in the 21st century. And so we talk about four opposing views um, in this episode on Joseph Smith's reputation. One as a prophet, two as a an inspired visionary, three as a pious fraud, and four as a con man. So let us know what you guys think of these uh, hypotheses in the comments below. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Small Talk with the Lees. Uh, in the last episode, we were talking, we just left off with kind of one aspect of the profit puzzle. And I, I want to introduce this profit puzzle again, just to be clear, because I was talking to Andre just behind the scenes uh, just a few minutes ago, and, and it, I guess it's maybe unclear what this profit puzzle actually is. So first of all, I'm going to quote Jan Ship's article from 1974 where she introduces this problem that still hasn't been solved 46 years later. It says, um, the prophet in the context of the social, political, economic, and theological milieu from which he came, the range of resources must be expanded to utilize the information and the insight that can be found in the Mormon canon. And the entire project must be approached with an open mind, a generous spirit, and a determination to follow the evidence that appeals to reason from whatever source it comes wherever it leads. Only then will the outcome be a picture of the prophet and an account of the foundations of the Mormon faith, which will be convincing to both tough minds, which demand empirical facts, and tender minds, comfortable in the presence of leaps of faith. What follows here are some suggestions leading in that direction. So in this important essay that Jan Ships, who's a non-Mormon, but extremely reputable scholar in Mormon studies presented, uh, she outlined, she kind of solidified the problem and the mystery of Joseph Smith. And that mystery really is a psychological one. So we talked about phenomenology, putting our feet in the shoes 
of Joseph Smith, we have to really reconcile what does it mean if we are to believe that the book of Abraham is not a historical document, but Joseph Smith claimed that written by his own hand on papyri. Sorry if I'm misquoting that, but it's basically what he says. Um, what does this mean? Because I, I compare this to like Brandon Sanderson, who's a popular LDS author. So he writes these stories, The Way of Kings, I think it's like thousands of pages and it has 10 uh, books in the series. He's come out with like three, I think. If he were to claim that the elves actually wrote down like a document and that's where he got his source from, you know, the, the question we would have is, okay, first of all, does Brandon Sanderson actually believe that elves wrote down a document? If he does, then he's delusional. That's so-called so the argument and the profit puzzle. Is he delusional? Is Joseph Smith delusional? If he doesn't believe that the elves wrote down this thing in the document, then is he lying to us in order to present a pseudepigraphic uh, work? Okay, so that's kind of the core issue here is the psychology. We want to get in the mind of Joseph Smith. I don't claim to be a, a prophet myself, so I can't actually get into Joseph Smith's mind. What I do want to do in this episode is present working theories about the profit puzzle. And it was pretty helpful to me. There was a Sunstone Symposium. They had this question of basically like a few decades after the famous profit puzzle question, what are the actual perspectives nowadays by LDS scholars in Mormon studies? So there was four people on the panel. Christopher Smith, who basically argued from a very black and white perspective that uh, Joseph Smith was just a con man and a fraud. Um, the cool thing I, I heard about uh, his argument was that he kind of argued that, hey, this paradox where Joseph Smith, I'm going to view him as a con man, but I don't see Mormonism as a con. You know, I see that as a working religion, let's say. And he tries to separate Mormonism from Joseph Smith. And he says, we don't give enough credit to the believers and the followers and their influence on Mormonism. We give too much credit to Joseph Smith. So I thought that was an interesting perspective to solve the paradox or to address it, I mean. Uh, the second view presented was Dan Vogel. And actually, I'll leave him for, for next. Uh, another view that was presented was by, uh, I think his name is Don Bradley. He wrote the book, The Lost 116 Pages. And he kind of argued, he was trying to argue from the perspective that Joseph Smith was an actual prophet, um, not in that he got it all right, as in it was a historical document. I actually can't remember exactly what he was saying, but he kind of gave us a sympathetic view to Joseph Smith. But in my opinion, it didn't really address the profit puzzle question very well. The third view, and I'm going to focus on these last two views because I think they have, I think the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle of these two, but I'm not really sure myself. I don't claim to be able to solve this puzzle any better than anyone else. So the third view is that Dan Vogel, um, who we talked a lot about his scholarship on the book of Abraham, he's, he's a former member of the church. His view is that Joseph Smith was committing what he terms pious fraud. And it was super interesting to watch his video on YouTube about pious fraud because all the Christopher Smith uh, people came out and, and were very, very angry at what he had to say. They called Dan Vogel a liar and deceiver. <laughs> so, so we have to know we're, this episode, we're treading in, in fire here basically on every side. 
people don't like what Dan Vogel had to say because he was too sympathetic, they say, to the Prophet Joseph Smith. Um, basically, the pious fraud argument is that uh, Joseph Smith is deeply religious. In support of this would be Ivan von Brody, who in her first edition of No Man Knows My History, she claimed that Joseph Smith was just acting up a, 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 a play, basically. He was pretending to be religious. But by her second edition of No Man Knows My History, she actually changed her mind on that issue. And she said, at least Joseph Smith believed that he was a prophet and he was sincere about that. So, so uh, basically the pious part of pious fraud is that Joseph Smith was trying to convey deeper religious truth. Um, that was his first and foremost objective. In doing so, he believed that the end was greater than the means. And he points to certain passages to kind of psychoanalyze Joseph Smith, uh, which is what we're doing here. We're trying to step in his shoes. For example, in Nephi, uh, first Nephi, Nephi pretends to be Laban and dresses up as him, kills him in order to obtain the plates. Another example is we can look to the book of Abraham itself, where instead, as the Genesis account says, that uh, Abraham lied about his sister, uh, his wife being his sister in order to protect her from the Pharaoh, from cuckolding her, which is a new word I learned. Uh, he, he lied about it. And what Joseph Smith does in the book of Abraham, if you look, I think, chapter three, he changes that from Abraham lying to God directly telling Abraham to lie about it. Uh, another point that he brings up is the lying spirit that God sends to Ahab or Jacob tricking Isaac that he is the actual uh, son uh, the, with the birthright. There's also um, God lying about to Adam that in that day ye shall die when ye eat of the fruit. Um, I know the word lying here is really strong because there's going to be a lot of arguments that, no, it's not technically a lie. But I think we can at least admit that it's, it's not totally like 100% being accurate representations of the truth when, when we view these things. The main core principle here is that Adam and Eve uh, took of the fruit in order to transgress, break a lower law in order to bring about a greater law. And that's kind of the argument that, that Dan Vogel is saying here is that Joseph Smith was consciously aware of his pseudepigraphic work, um, but he justified it or rationalized it um, by saying that, hey, my point is to bring about religious truth and to do God's will. And he was sincere that he believed this was God's will, but insincere in that he made claims such as this is written by Abraham's own hand on papyri. So that's to kind of sum up the Dan Vogel view. Um, I don't know. Do we want to dive into that one before I present the Antaves view? Or do you want me to just present it all and then we can just do a big discussion? Ooh, I want Antaves view. I like Antaves view. All right, then we're going to jump into Antaves. So this is kind of the view Greg Prince, uh, Terrell Givens, David Bakavoy, all super respectable people, in my opinion, uh, view it. So, you know, it really gets to this argument of whether or not Joseph Smith was sincere about what he was doing. And this is the argument that he was sincere. So the most interesting thing I heard was Antave's argument. And, and, and the reason why this is interesting is because Antave's, for those of you who don't know her, she is not an LDS person. I tried to look up her affiliation. I think she might be a different Christian branch. 
but she's not LDS and she's never been LDS. But she's out here trying to defend Joseph Smith's reputation. So right off the bat, that kind of is interesting, right? That a non-LDS scholar would try to defend Joseph Smith. And so here's how she kind of presents it, is that in the story of Ether in the Book of Mormon, the brother of Jared takes normal stones, you know, it's nothing special about these stones. And he gets them and he he's morphs, like melts them down and, and, and uh, shapes them. And then he takes them and presents them to God and asks God to make these stones something miraculous. Okay, so that's the core of her argument is that Joseph Smith, even if he knew that, let's say, the papyri were just papyri, okay, so to say, that he could view this as a, a way to take the papyri, this normal uh, Egyptian writing, he could take it to God and ask God to transform it into a spiritual, religious, truth-filled document. And so I know like people are thinking, that's crazy. Like who in the world would actually think that? Let's just look at Catholics' doctrine on transubstantiation. I think that's the word, right? Yeah. Uh, when you go to the Eucharist, Justin, what, could you describe like what is the liturgy? Or actually, they don't let non-Catholics partake in the Eucharist, right? Yeah. Okay, so, so you probably haven't experienced it. But from what I've read and from what I've talked to our cousin Alan, you know, what they do is they, the priest brings the bread to the congregation. And after they like bless or the bread, they, they actually transform it into the literal body, uh, the flesh of Christ. And to LDS members, that sounds crazy. But to Catholics, you know, af in the story, uh, lots of people went away because that saying was too hard for them to hear. That's how they argue. So, so there's this, there's this belief, you know, and it's sincere and it's literal at the same time that Jesus's flesh is actually in the bread. And, you know, we can take uh, the bread into a scientific lab and we can look and see if there's skin cells in it. You know, I'm taking this extremely literal, but, but like we can prove probably without a doubt that Jesus is, flesh is not in that blood literally and and so i'm using this as a comparison to talk about joseph smith's belief of the papyri actually uh being in the own hand of of abraham because it's you could make the view uh, leave room for the view that he he knows that it's papyri and he presents it to the lord as something more than papyri in order that the lord might work make his work known to man so in that way, Joseph Smith is, in, is either conscious about it, but he's not deceptive, or you could also make the argument that Joseph Smith is, is, um, is not delusional if he actually did believe from the very start that the papyri were written by Abraham. Because uh, the argument Ann Taves makes about delusion is if you look at the DSM, the, psych the APA's psychological manual, in order to be delusional, you have to be the only one believing that something crazy is going on, right? Um, the fact of the matter is Joseph Smith wasn't the only one. In fact, he got his scribes and he got an entire community of religious followers to believe him. So in the DSM, there is an exception for religious belief when it comes to delusion. So 
uh, I think what I'm trying to do here is not jump from like argument to argument to argument just to say, okay, it's all fine. Like one of these arguments covers it. I, I'm more trying to just present ideas to show that, hey, there's some nuance here in the profit puzzle question. It's not as simple as Joseph Smith was lying, he was uh, duped, or he was evil. So thoughts, guys. Yeah, this is a tough one because there's so many factors. Um, so it, I was listening to that Sun Sun Symposium and they, they, each person gave like a really good argument, you know, from what they did, like how they behaved to like what they did with, um, like how they changed uh, revelations in the DNC. Um, it becomes really, uh, it's just, it's so hard. It, the thing, here's the thing with the profit puzzle and how the, the profit puzzle is framed in the first place. The profit puzzle sort of implies that you have these competing arguments, right? These competing positions, but only one of them is right. And, and I can see why people think that because like, um, because people want to believe that they can't all be like true simultaneously. And that I can see why they're, Get what you know what they're getting at but history is so long and, and joseph smith is so complex i'm sure that there are there are aspects where joseph smith is acting sincerely but then he's also recognizing like or even doubting like hold on like am i being deceived right because he even he even poses that question to himself several times you know so am I are you wrong? talking about when he tries to get the copyright for the book of mormon in canada and he comes back, he has a revelation that it's, it can get done. And then they like, hey, it didn't work. And then he's like, hey, there's some revelations from God. There's some revelation from man. And then there's some revelation from the devil. And uh, Terrell Givens loved this quote because he, he says, you know, isn't that great that you could have someone who says this and then expects you to trust them uh, the next day? I know other right. people listening to that might just be like, hey, I don't want any of that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. <laughs> but I, I think that's an interesting perspective is that Joseph Smith himself, the more you study the prophets, it's not clear, you know, yeah. that their, their knowledge is unshakable. Right. And, and even within the, the Book of Mormon translation too, like there's, there's a, uh, an experience that Emma Smith shares where, you know, he's translating the Book of Mormon and, and he's writing about the wall in Jerusalem and he says, whoa, hold on, Emma, is there, is there a wall in Jerusalem? And she's like, yeah, there, there is. And then Joe Smith says, oh, good, because I, I thought I was being deceived for a second. And it's like, this is the prophet, man. Like, he's worried about him being deceived. So the, the, so the prophet puzzle, I think, implies that there's only one answer that, all, that, that like, encompasses all of Smith's behavior and that there's no room for the other ones. Um, but then there's another problem, too, with the prophet puzzle. And I wrote about this in the essay that we were talking about last time. The reason why the Book of Abraham is so problematic for people, um, especially when they're going through a faith crisis, is because of the epistemic framework that we view the Book of Abraham. We, as LDS members today, we sort of look at the Book of Abraham and we sort of take this line of reasoning. We, we say... You know, if the Book of Mormon is not a valid translation, then this casts doubt on the veracity of the translation of the Book of Mormon and Smith's prophetic calling. On the other hand, if it can be proven that the Book of Abraham is historic and accurate, then that provides enough evidence for the thing that Smith, without formal education, was able to translate an ancient document by the power of God. 
and thereby proving that he's a prophet of God. The problem is, is that when we, what you have to ask yourself, what makes a prophet and the prophet puzzle sort of um, frames that the, the answer to that question by saying, Oh, well, Joseph is a prophet because um, he received revelation or he was able to translate. And what they tend to sort of overlook is that the role of a prophet, and, and there's been a lot of scholarship done on this topic um, that we can go over later. Yeah, but let's actually go over that. Yeah. Okay. So like the role of a prophet, right? For Mormons in particular, we believe that a prophet, like Joseph Smith is a prophet because he was able to translate texts. However, most prophets don't translate texts um, throughout the Bible and throughout the Book of Mormon. And um, there's work done by Oxford University and by other religious scholars. And they, they, and I even learned this in Institute where a prophet isn't someone who's like a foreteller who tells the future or who's able to translate text. A prophet is someone who, who tells forth. And what that means is they're able to like critique um, the religious society or the society as a whole and say, Hey, we're off track. We need to get back on track. And it's these religious principles and, and doctrines that are going to get us back on track. I, and um, I, I love that. I just want to emphasize that for the listeners one more time. A prophet is not a foreteller in, in the sake, in the sense of the old Testament and even let's say the new Testament, but rather forth tellers as in they're going backwards or they're commenting on issues relating very closely to their day. Yeah. And so in, in some sense, wouldn't that be them saying we need to come back because if we don't, then this is going to happen. So in the old Testament and new Testament, when they're foretelling is in some sense, they realize that the principles are lacking in the society. So they're saying, if we don't do such and such things, since we're off the path, this is what's going to happen to us. So, you know, so when you hear people say, Oh, Jordan Peterson's like a prophet, he's kind of foretelling, okay, if we don't stick to the principles of free speech or something, these we're going to turn into totalitarian state or, you know, so that, that type of foretelling, isn't that kind of what the old Testament is, is getting at? So I'm going to jump to Isaiah to illustrate this. Um, this there's, lots of complexity to this question and I, so i don't want to present it as, as something simple but but in the, in the case of isaiah from what i understand uh we read this as lds members and we have no clue what isaiah is talking about because we read it and it's in the in the uh head title this subtitle it says that hey this is a prophecy about the messiah but then we read the, the chapter before it or the chapter after, and it makes absolutely no sense, right? Because what we're doing is something called eisegesis, where we're putting our lens of Isaiah is prophesying about Cyrus freeing the Jews from the Persian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. Um, when it turns out, if you date the text, uh, when, when they're talking about Cyrus, uh, Isaiah is long dead by this point. Isaiah was born in like, he was like the 740 uh, before the common era. And this text about Cyrus and the Persians is, is dating to uh, all the way forward to like uh, 600 or 500 before the common era. So, so the thing is, what we see here is a great example of pseudonymous work, which I think relates to our discussion about the book of Abraham or pseudepigrapha which is people claiming to be Isaiah and writing in his name when they're not actually Isaiah because he's already dead. 
But what happens is we see these texts long after and we view it all as one, one book, the book of Isaiah, when reality is multiple books of Isaiah. And Isaiah is commenting on issues uh, deeply related to their problems, right? When the Syrians take over the Northern Kingdom, Isaiah is commenting on, hey, let's not be them, right? Or otherwise, if you guys don't worship the correct God, Hezekiah, uh, then we're going to be destroyed like them, just like you're saying, Justin. The thing is, when we get prophecies, so-called prophecies, about Cyrus freeing the Jews from Babylonian captivity, that's long after the fact. And uh, this is the Deutero-Isaiah problem that we're going to get in, in the Book of Mormon question. But the thing is, even then, they're talking about problems specifically related to them. And kind of what I want to present here is that when LDS members are dealing with issues of the book of Abraham, we're not alone here because the entire Christian world really has to deal with problems of pseudepigrapha and pseudonymous work, such as the example I just gave about Isaiah. And so don't think that like, hey, like you can't pick on Mormonism based on the book of Abraham without picking on pretty much every other Christian and let's say Jews as well for the book of book of uh, Isaiah. Mm. And I, I can get more into that argument here in a little bit, but that's, that's just kind of the answer to your question. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So I think we have to, if we're going to, if we're going to make sense of, uh, of everything Brandon, and what Justin said, and what's going on with the book of Abraham and, and Smith's role as a prophet. I mean, Smith is super problematic, and so is every prophet. I mean, you look at Moses, he killed somebody before he became a prophet, and same with Nephi. So let's not, let's not pretend or like assume that you have to be a perfect person to be a prophet, because almost all each prophet is deeply flawed. Um, but, um, you know, Joseph Smith, right? There are cases where it's documented that he lied about something, right? Like polygamy is a great example, right? He yeah, so I actually it. wanted to, to bring that up, right? Because he, the Elias topic, gospel topics, as they admit that Joseph Smith multiple occasions denied that he was practicing polygamy in public. And so, like, how are we to make mm -hmm. light of that as far as his reputation or the profit puzzle question goes? Right. And so, and, and, and answering this question, uh, you know, like, did Joseph Smith succeed in, like, um, being a prophet in the sense of telling forth, like, that we're off track and we need to get on track? You know, that's going to be a really hard thing to, to answer definitively, right? Because I think, you know, if you look at, um, if you look at what Smith is doing, right, not what he claims he's doing, but, like, what he's actually doing, right? Joseph Smith is like one of the biggest critics of Christianity, you know, and like on a, a bazillion levels. And he's really radically destroying like the frame in which Protestants uh, view Christianity in the 19th century and even today. And so in that sense, he's, he is like really telling forth like, hey, you guys are looking at this all wrong. Um, and I'm going to write these works that shed light on what's the more correct way to look at things. And, and, then, and then from there, you look at the church, right? And you look at how, I, I love what they said in the symposium, like the church itself, right? It, it has taken this unique course that's unique 
um, that's distinct from like the, the, the positions of the profit public. Like the church isn't simply like a fraudulent organization and it's not simply um, like a bunch of kooky people. Like it's a legit religious movement that's producing good things. And, and that's in stark contrast to like its founder, you know? Yeah. So, so, yeah. Go ahead. ahead. Well, I like that is the core of the argument here. Right. So I, to kind of just sum up where we've, we've gone in in this podcast episode, you know, the profit puzzle has been presented. Um, I think we've established that, Hey, there's, there's lots of different theories. Maybe none of them are right. Maybe all of them are right. You know, um, the question that we as believers, let's say, or faithful members have to deal with now is that, hey, we have, we have all these problems. Now, to put on the scale of balance, look at all the benefits, let's say. So, so from the book of Abraham, you know, what, what exactly did Joseph Smith accomplish with it? Like, what good is the book of Abraham? Because uh, members of the community of Christ would say, hey, nothing. You know, that was a speculation. So we actually took it out of the canon a couple of decades ago. Um, I think Terrell Givens actually makes a really good case that without the Pearl of Great Price, any unique doctrine to Mormonism uh, is gone. It's just watered down Protestantism. So he points out one unique doctrine. So you ask the question, what is a unique doctrine? Like no other Christians have it that comes from the Book of Mormon. It's going to be the Felix Culpa, that the fall was a good, good thing. And that's about it. That's what Terrell Gibbons says. Um, so the thing is, there's lots of, you know, t- things about the doctrine of Christ in the Book of Mormon. But when it comes to eternal families, you know, happy families, uh, temple stuff, this all comes from the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses. And, and so, Doctrine and Covenants. Right. And, and the thing with the Doctrine and Covenants is if you piece, like D&C 29, if you look, there's like all the, it's really disjoint that section and it has absolutely no flow to it when it talks about things like Christ was from the foundation of the world and little children um, are good and all these ideas uh, and the spiritual creation before the temporal creation. Um, all these ideas are really disjoint and it turns out the same time frame, Joseph Smith is producing the book of Moses the next few weeks and he, he, nails it into this coherent narrative you know what dan vogel would argue as inspired pseudepigraphic work and so what and the reason for pseudepigrapha is precisely what andre was talking about in that you have a christian community they they have these creeds the creed that joseph smith hates is god has no body parts no passion uh, and he's a god without body parts or passion and, and so for Joseph Smith to, um, let's say, in order for people to take his views, theological views seriously, um, he has to present it as a pseudepigraphic where he says, hey, this isn't my view. This is God coming to Abraham literally and Abraham writing it on papyri. So you have to realize like with Danville's argument here uh, for pseudepigrapha, Joseph Smith is trying to propel these profound religious ideas into society in the christian world and he actually does it successfully and the success the way we can measure that is today we believe in the plan of salvation as members of the church so there is a lot here to be said about the beautifulness in all the messiness that david bachboy talks about 
Yeah. And I would, I would just say like, kind of along with Alejandro's saying, I don't think it's just like one of those things that has to be true. And there's always that scripture about how God will take the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And it almost seems as if God is in the sense of someone that wants to take his orthodox views is that God is taking this very contradictory character with a lot of flaws and a lot of mistakes. And he's, and maybe like pious, I think pious fraud, that's such a funny term because it sounds a paradoxical in itself. How can you piously be frauding someone, you know? So it's, it's like using these things in order for, a more beautiful and a greater idea to kind of spring forth and that's and for us looking back and observing that it just it just seems odd but that that's just kind of like one of those scriptures that come yeah so i'm just going to cut in here because justin just cut out but i i think a big problem for let's say orthodox members that read the cs letter is they knows little to nothing about the probate Christ. I, I think a big problem here, you know, even myself before I studied uh, into these issues, I didn't realize the importance of the book of Abraham or the book of Moses on the plan of salvation and temple theology in LDS culture. So if you're a, a, a believing saint, let's say, and you read the CS letter and you know nothing about the good that comes from the book of Abraham and the book of Moses, and all you read is the bad, right? Then there's, no, there's really no reason for you to be here. Right. And so I think it has to be balanced with a serious study and, and kind of from the Terrell Givens perspective of study of the book of Abraham, book of Moses, to see this kind of this intricate messiness, but the beauty within it. And maybe that's not for everyone, but for me, it's, it's deeply more spiritual and more revealing about revelation and how we can personally connect to the divine the motivation that comes from the plan of salvation that that stuff to me kind of clicks you know i think uh, if i was just to share my opinion on this i think that the the pearl of great price and the doctrine and covenants they offer uh particularly uh they, they really give a nice wholeness to the gospel um but i think if i was to add an opinion you said that the the Book of Mormon might be like watered down. Um, what did you say, Protestant? If all we Terrell Givens quote is that if all we had was the Book of Doctrine from directly from the Book of Mormon, then we would be uh, 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 kind of like a watered down version of Protestantism. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that exactly. I think, uh, for example, in a in a puzzle, it's something really interesting because truth is not something that is you know. Is, is truth can exist in, in many different ways, I think. And you can find things that are, that are coherent and that you can uh, consciously put together. But then to have, there's a lot of things that are just out there, you know? And so to be able to form, to put these pieces of the puzzle together to get an entire picture of what we're experiencing in reality is a, is a very difficult thing. And because Protestantism and this uh, you know, there was a lot of Calvinism back in those days and a lot of different evangelical uh, types of movements, including the Shakers and whatnot. And so you have all these different uh, pieces of the puzzle that aren't fitting together uh, quite as they should, especially with biblical texts and things like that. And so the Book of Mormon, what it does, I feel like it just kind of gives more foundation, right? We talk about the two points and how you can only connect one line in between two points. And so it gives this foundation to uh, the position that Christ holds, right? And so I think that this is the central focus of the Book of Mormon. And the central focus of the Book of Mormon is not to give uh, 
not to establish the plan of salvation exactly, but it's to establish the fun, the, the fundamental placeholder that Christ holds in every person's life on earth. And so I think that the book of Mormon achieved its function and that if we're to view the book of Mormon as the function of of creating uh, an outline for the plan of salvation, then we're going to be disappointed. And I think that after you establish Christ as the centerpiece, which is the most important, right? Then all of a sudden you can ask these speculative questions of now what, right? Now what's going to happen to us after we do this? And so I think this is where we, we start to have these questions of doctrine and covenants of, of the Pearl of Great Price and things like that. So that would just be my opinion. on That's on his perfect. Uh, so, like Andre, what you just said there, I really like. Um, yeah, I don't disagree with anything you said there. Actually, I think what we can do here is is view it because I w- I was presenting this more of a, hey, like as far as the Book of Mormon goes, there's stuff in there that's important, but as far as the Book of Abraham goes and the Book of Moses, the tendency of Latter Day Saints is to deeply undervalue what's presented in there, and so from the mind of Joseph Smith, when he finishes the book of Mormon translation by like 1829 or 1830, um, he actually never comes back really to the book of Mormon much uh, besides a few corrections. He, he immediately dives into the old Testament. And, you know, for those of you who have read the Pearl of Great Price, you know that this is uh, either pseudographic work or, or it's commenting on, the issues presented in the Old Testament that Joseph Smith is reading. And so he has these really deep questions, basically what you just said. It, the Book of Mormon lays out the centerpiece being Christ. And then after that, he doesn't really come back to that. He goes d- directly to, you know, like the, the counsel of gods, the nature of God. What is God like? Does he have body parts and passions? These are things we see presented in the book of Moses when, when God appears to Enoch and Enoch says, how is it that you can weep? Right? This is Terrell Gibbons famous, the weeping God uh, book that he wrote. So like some of the very core concepts of the nature of God, the nature of man, the plan of salvation. Uh, these things are questions that Joseph Smith has on his mind after translating the book of Mormon. And he doesn't go back to the book of Mormon. He sticks with these questions all the way up to King Follett's sermon when he's like a few months before he dies, you know. So I just wanted to emphasize the the uniqueness that is presented in the book of Abraham. And if we throw out the book of Abraham, we do so at our own uh, danger, kind of. Our own so, demise. Yeah. I mean, you hear people say that about the Old Testament, too. Like other Christians, like, oh, I, I think I kind of just want to cut the Old Testament out. I don't really like what it says. You can't like do that. God killing people <laughs> and randomly, whatever. I'm, yeah, anyways, go on. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. You, example. you can't you can't cut out the Old Testament. I mean, it's just, just such a, I know. a foundational. It's such a, it, there's so much more to it, but I think on the surface, when people are just looking at it, it's, it is a reaction of seeing God kill someone for dropping the Ark of the Covenant or, you know, Oh, not even that. The genocide of, of genocide of yes, of, no. And Terrell Gibbons bears ripping up children. You know yeah. things like that. Terrell Gibbons talks about this. He he actually says, "Hey, we shouldn't. It's not that we should take it out, but we shouldn't teach the Old Testament because just Latter Day Saints are just so fixed on this idea of eisegesis and everything has to fit in my framework that they can't view things like the genocide with any type of like." Hey, that was wrong. You know, uh, this is Jewish history, and they're trying to 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 make it 
uh, in the best light possible in Jewish history. So as far as the book of Abraham goes, I think I've done the best I could. <laughs> you know, you guys tell me how, how, how you guys think you did uh, in presenting the case for the book of Abraham. You know, at the minimum, there is unique theological benefits. If you like the uniqueness or the peculiarness of Mormonism, uh, then you got to just accept the weirdness of the book of Abraham with open arms, despite the problems of the translation. And I think what we've talked about here with Ann Tave's argument, um, the non-LDS scholar, I think she really presents the strongest argument here um, for reconciling Joseph Smith as someone who could both be fully consciously aware that it's not papyri written by Abraham, but still be deeply sincere without any sort of deception in that he's treating it like Jesus treats his body. He says, he says to the bread, this is my flesh. And they're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. He's like, no, this is my flesh, right? He's not lying. He's consciously aware that it's not actually his flesh, but he's doing it to convey, let's say, higher truth, if we want to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, Brandon, you sent me like kind of a good, uh, like a comment that was made on one of our videos that I think sums up basically the concerns of people that are looking at this, this catalyst theory where like, I, I just kind of like, if Joseph had been openly aware of it all being a catalyst and it was always claimed to be just inspirational, kind of like how the JST was presented, that'd be a different story. But the explicit claims of direct translation of papyri being written by Abraham, stuff like that is clearly just circus style hype, some Barnum and Bailey shenanigans to dupe gullible locals for a quick buck. But I think like you're, you're directly addressing this by saying that analogous with how Jesus is saying, this is my flesh. He does. I like, he knows it's not his flesh and he's not speaking in term like a materialistic literalist terms, but he's conveying a higher truth. So, and if we're to take him seriously, like from a literal perspective, of course he's, he's lying, but is that really like what we're trying to take him for? Or are we trying to understand the deeper truth that he's, he's conveying in this sense? Yeah. And so like with this podcast, just for people curious, you know, why we're doing this, I, I, I think if, if, you know, if you, if you think that's a reasonable argument that Joseph Smith is his main, he's sincere in that he believes in God and he believes he's trying to bring about God's will on earth, uh, the details, you know, that we can <laughs> deal with that later, right? But, <clears throat> but if he's sincere about that and his main perspective, his main goal is to bring about higher religious truths, um, that's kind of what I want to get at later on in this podcast, even uh, for those who are interested in that kind of stuff. You know, we can talk about theology and we can talk about religious truth versus scientific truth. But for the purpose of, of this episode, I think, um, you know, what we presented here is the catalyst theory. And it's the theory that the Elias Church has espoused since the 2013 with the Gospel Topics essays. Um, it's actually been expressed by B.H. Roberts and 11 or so other scholars in some form or another uh, in the improvement era. And, and you know, if, if, if that makes sense to you, you know, like go for it and just embrace it and own your religion with that, you know, if, if that's what you want to do. Another option, you know, if you don't, if none of this matters to you and you just want to say, hey, I don't know what's going on, but I, I just want to believe and have faith, like 
own that, just do it, you know? And of course, for everyone else who, who is extremely critical and, you know, this episode is not going to be like particularly tasteful to them, but you know, like just own whatever, whatever you want to want to think on this issue. And I think the book of Abraham is really where we have to answer these hard questions. Uh, I think for the rest of the CS letter, when it gets in the book of Mormon, we've kind of addressed most of the questions just by focusing in on the, the book of Abraham. But uh, for the sake of our listeners, we're going to cover it all. But that's kind of uh, my thoughts on the book of Abraham and the and how it sheds light on the prophet puzzle. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. Okay, thank you, guys. So I think that was a good two episodes we got here. Uh, most of the stuff we said here is pretty unique, to be honest. Like most podcasts yeah. aren't talking about this stuff. Yeah, is that I just mean, two episodes then that you're gonna? Just yeah, the it? first one will be Catalyst Theory, and the second one will be the the Prophet Puzzle. Okay, but well, they're kind of mixed, mixed in. Yeah, I think I think uh, I'm actually really excited to hear what people's comments are on this. Also. Um, I can put the essay I wrote on a Google Drive, and you can yeah, it I can want. link that if, if yeah. you do that. Um, we'll yeah, be posting this Tuesday. So. I, cool, and I have all the all the footnotes and the references, so people will not talk out of my butt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, that's perfect. Yeah, so we'll have that in the show notes for uh, for you guys, and uh, yeah. So thanks for listening. I was living like a